Hello and welcome back to the Truth For Doubt discussion series. I am your host, Michael Badger, and this week we have with us New Testament scholar Tommy Yurkovich. I am unbelievably excited to have Tommy on with us because he is leaps and bounds smarter than I will ever be, and that's honestly true for all of our guests. But he is here with us to clear up certain myths and misunderstandings about the New Testament, things such as how the New Testament canon was actually formed, or whether it was simply put together by those in power to push a certain political agenda, or if there are any contradictions within the New Testament that we as Christians need to be worried about. But ultimately, we discuss how we can trust and rely on the New Testament to really be God's Word. So we hope that you take something away from this interview that you can use in your everyday conversations with unbelievers. So we really hope that you enjoy this discussion. All right. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for being willing to have this interview with me, man. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Micah, for having me. Absolutely. Well, hey, for those of you who don't know, Tommy taught me in Germany, and I thought it would be awesome to get him on here to clear up some objections that you often hear about the New Testament. But but first off, Tommy, tell tell us about yourself. Okay, well, let me um, yeah tell you a little bit. So, um, yeah, I, I'm from Germany, and I am uh, 35 years old, and I have a wife, and we have three kids. I studied theology both in Germany and in the U.S. at Dallas Theological Seminary. My wife and I both graduated 2012 with our THM. And uh, after that, I started to work for a German mission called Contact Mission. And I served um, here in Germany and Europe uh, doing theological education at a number of different institutions. That's awesome. So are you, you're originally from Germany, is that right? Yeah, I was born in, and raised here in Germany, yes. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Because your last name is Yurkovich, and so I was like, that doesn't sound like the most German name I've ever heard before. <laughs> so father, I wasn't 100% sure. Yeah, my father immigrated to Germany from Croatia, so it's a Croatian name. Ah, okay. And, and uh, I was born and, and raised here, yeah. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. I See, I feel like you've told me that before, but I, I have a really bad memory, so I'm sorry if you've, like, that's the third time you've explained that to me. Okay. But no, again, I wanted to uh, talk to you about the New Testament because there's, um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions and a lot of myths that get thrown out uh, when it comes to just a bunch of different things with the New Testament about how it was put together, like the canonization and all of these different things. And, and I thought, you know what, man, Tommy is the man to ask these particular questions. So I figured we would just kind of dive right in. And so the first question that I had for you was the myth that the Bible was put together by those in power in order to like push some sort of political agenda. So, so how would you answer that accusation against the, uh, the Christian faith in the New Testament? Yeah, thank you, Micah. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, let me try to break it down. Before we get to the um, part about who did it, we have to think about what was done. So imagine for a moment here with me a box. Everything in the box has the quality of being inspired by God. Okay, we can agree on the quality of the contents in this box, that it is from God, it is true, it is authoritative, and then everything outside the box, obviously, would be true or not, it could be corrected. Um, So the question becomes, um, how did they actually get there? So that what what is in the box? Did this box fall down from heaven? Um, Or at least the list? When was this box filled? Who filled it? And why did they fill it with those books that we have now? 
are there maybe others that should have gone into it but didn't? So this is the question a lot of people raise, um, and there are different ways to answer it. Some of those have a little tiny seeds of truth in them, and then other answers are completely false. Let me, let me walk through some of them here for a moment. So one would be to refer to Constantine. There was an um, emperor in the fourth century. He, he, he became converted to Christianity, some say of political reasons, but be it as it is. Um, he was the first emperor to convert. So some then say he either selected the books of the Bible or he forced the church to select the books so that they would have a uniform canon across the globe. Now that's false. He, he, he did not do that. He did pay for the church to make copies of the Bible, to make up for the ones that were destroyed in the last great persecution. But he didn't select any books, or he, he did also not reject any. Okay, so another option what's been brought up is the council, the council of Nicaea, or some other council. Well, again, there, there's no evidence at all that any council selected the books of the Bible. Repeat, no council selected the books of the Bible. Now, how about maybe some other specific person, a church father, maybe Athanasius or Augustine or somebody of equal authority? So we could say maybe once the superstar said, said it and fixed it, then it was fixed. Well, no, again, we don't have that. We don't see that. And again, there's no evidence for that. Or how about the Pope or the Catholic Church? Or some say maybe the Protestant reformers. Well, uh, again, they did not uh, select and fix the books. We could say, okay, it was the reformers. They finally rejected the Apocrypha. And even Luther doubted some books, uh, meaning the canon was still open until they approved it. Well, no, not so much. The canon was pretty much clear. Um, so, so what's happened? Well, it's hard to tell. This is a difficult question. And in the final sense, we could even say, and we should say, there's some mystery to it. And the final answer is the Spirit certainly worked through various means to make sure the Bible came to us as it did. Okay, let me, let me pick up um, a popular critic's theory here again for a moment. So this is how it usually goes then. They say some guy a scholar, church father, pope, arrived on the scene hundreds of years after the Bible was written, uh, a bunch of books were written, and, uh, and he decided. No. So when he comes on the scene, imagine it's kind of a mess. Nobody has a Bible. Few people know where these books came from. Uh, they all seem to say different things. Um, but we have this box. We still have this box here, and it needs to be filled in order to have a collection of writings that have authority, and we can use that to teach from. So this guy chooses a collection based on his own beliefs, prejudice, and, and whatever. So usually they say this is to increase his own power and authority because mm -hmm. it's, it's all about power in, in history. So uh, And then obviously they would say he gets rid or they get rid of the other books that didn't uh, match, that, that didn't make it, that didn't look like they, um, that they were part of it. So that's a nice theory that's often brought forth uh, by critics. Um, but the thing is, it, it never happened. Uh, there is no evidence for this theory. And, and the goal of this theory is obviously to place doubt in the Bible you have and in the faith um, they teach. And, and then again, these critics can replace your Bible with other books and reinvent the faith in ways that suits them.
So again, the bottom line is this did not happen. We have no historical evidence for this kind of uh, process that this happened. Yeah, so uh, maybe we could look at it more positively and see what did actually happen after we have looked at what did not happen. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. So do you think that one of the reasons why, I guess you just kind of answered the question I was about to ask. So do you think a lot of this comes up with wishful thinking, uh, because of wishful thinking on like the unbelievers part of, of kind of, they, they want the Bible to be true, so they interpret history in this strange false way? Well, some of it has to do obviously with worldview and from the from the get-go, if you reject um, the possibility of God working supernaturally in history, you'll have to come up with some um, explanation within history. And right. so there are some things that have, that have happened. Um, but again, this specific uh, kind of theory that's often been advanced and what your question was about, that somebody in power, like Constantine, an emperor, or some group within the church, a council or something, like pushed their own agenda and then destroyed all the evidence to the contrary, that is just something that doesn't hold uh, the evidence of history. It, this did not happen. Um, right. And so, um, yeah, we have to... We have to reject this uh, popular critics uh, theory and, and then see what what did actually happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, how, how did the New Testament canon come into being? Okay, well, um, the word canon that we use here, um, it, it comes from an ancient Greek word that means rule or measurement rod. It's a standard. Um, it means the books themselves are the rule or standard against which everything else is then measured up. So if we look at the Bible, we should begin for a second here with the Old Testament, because that's the beginning. The first five books are the five books of Moses, and we actually see that they immediately began functioning as the standard against which their, uh, the beliefs and actions are to be judged. We see that in, in Joshua, which is the first book after the five books of Moses. And in Joshua 1.8, uh, Joshua is charged to keep these and to keep this, uh, this teaching and to follow it. And so scripture immediately is functioning as a canon, as a standard. Okay, so then the question becomes, how, how did they know these were the books that had this authority? And the answer lies in the, in the authority of the person, because Moses was God's special prophet. He had prophetic authority, and this was confirmed by signs and wonders and miracles. What he said was from God. So therefore, the books he wrote down carried the same authority as the person Moses, as the prophet when he speaks with God's authority. And so therefore, they accepted Moses. And then we see that Moses himself already actually predicted that there would be other prophets, and especially a great prophet, a specific one, that would follow him with the same kind of prophetic authority as Moses. That's written, uh, we can read that in Deuteronomy 18. And, and therefore, their prophetic writings, um, yeah, the prophets would confirm, and they would add, and once somebody who was identified as a true prophet of God um, was contributing a message of God, it immediately started again functioning as a canonical um, a book in the same way with, as, it, as it was with Moses. And so that then brings us to the New Testament. The New Testament, the foundation of the New Testament canon is basically the same, namely the New Testament prophets. Um, the New Testament itself describes these people as apostles and prophets. 
and their teaching is the foundation of the church. So the entire canon is built on the foundation of the Hebrew prophets, the Old Testament, and the apostles and prophets, the New Testament. So the New Testament and the entire early church viewed the apostles and prophets as a fixed number in the early church. And so by about 100 AD, uh, maybe a decade or so later, the prophetic office and gift had come to an end. As, as in the Old Testament, the apostles and prophets confirmed their message with miracles. And so they knew these person, these people um, were reliable and they were, they were having divine authority and therefore their writings would have divine authority. Mm. Um, and so, um, yeah, so that's, that's what happened. And, and then we see what's important for us to notice too, and, and sometimes we are not as aware of, is a group of people that came right after the apostles. And we don't have their writings now in New Testament. They're called the Apostolic Fathers. But they have written quite a bit too. Those were the direct students of the Apostles and the Prophets, the Apostolic Fathers. Now, what do we gain from them? What do we learn from them? First, again, they directly received both the oral teachings from the Apostles themselves. Second, they directly received the writings of the Apostles and Prophets. Third, they knew which writings they had received from the Apostles. And fourth, they provide the link in an unbroken chain. So that's an important point. There is no gap in history. And that's what critics sometimes want to suggest, that maybe there was some sort of um, a gap where there could have been a fog, where there was a haze, and something got changed there. But we don't see right. that. Right. So, um, yeah. So some of those documents, if I take some examples, the Didarchy, it's a, it's a document from the first century. It's like a church uh, planting manual from the apostolic era. Um, some dated as early as 50 to 70 AD. And, and, and there's a place there in chapter 15 where um, they summarize some of the teachings from the gospel. And then it points to its source for more. So you can, it seems like you can refer to it, you can go. And it, it, it seems to suggest there was a written gospel around already and very early. Maybe that was Matthew, maybe Hebrew Matthew, we don't know. But it shows us very early on, uh, it points to what we know now as scripture. Uh, or another example is First Clement. This is a letter that was written from Clement in Rome to the Corinthians at the end of the first century. And in that letter, Clement refers to Paul, and he also explains the apostles are now gone, but they have given us Holy Scripture, and this is what you should be reading. So he tells in a letter to Corinth at the end of the first century, pick up the first letter to Corinthians that Paul has written you a couple of decades earlier. Pick it up and read it. So there's an awareness of um, the apostles have left, uh, have left behind scripture, holy scripture for us to read, and that's authoritative. So these apostolic fathers, they recognize they are not on the same plane. They are not on the same level. So uh, another one, Ignatius, also just at the beginning of the second century, he, he, he writes to the Ephesians and he tells them, Paul wrote you a letter. So go read it. Again, he encourages them to read that. And he clearly distinguishes his own authority from the apostles. So um, he submits to the apostles and he's pointing out these are the apostles. They have given us, um, um, yeah, God's word. And we, we should, that's what we listen to, first of all. Um, and, and that's, we see that again and again, all the apostolic fathers do that. They point back to the apostles that were their teachers and point to their authority and distinguish it clearly from, from, from who they are. So from the very beginning, we have this going on. Wow. Man. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, well, then we could still maybe wonder, didn't they make changes later? So if there wasn't a, a gap in history in the beginning that would allow for, for tampering, well, maybe at some point there was this possibility. Well, yes, this is very likely to occur. Um, we should remind ourselves we are dealing here with real people and real churches doing real ministry, using real writings they got from their teachers. So from the beginning, they knew they were to preserve the tradition of sound teaching by word of mouth and by writing and avoid false teachers in their writings. So that's, they, they knew they had to pay attention to this. Um, one verse that outlines this a little bit, this process of discipleship to us, is we find in the New Testament in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Um, let me open this here. So Paul writes here, the things you have learned... And trust these to faithful people who will be able to teach others also. We see here three generations in view. The first is Paul and his associates. You can think of Paul, Peter, John, Luke. So the apostles and prophets of the church. But then they are to teach others who are able to teach others also. So we actually know who these people are. We already mentioned the first generation that we are familiar with from the New Testament. The mm -hmm. second We've already mentioned a few names like Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, and others. And we even know their disciples again in the second century, third generation, people like Justin, Miletio, Theophilus, and Irenaeus at the end of that. And so we actually know these people from church history. They are not anonymous to us, and they have uh, left behind uh, a good number of writings. pointing to the apostles from the beginning, as I said. So um, maybe let's imagine what happened in one of these communities. Let's take John, the Apostle John, who lived the longest. He lived in um, Asia Minor and he came until the end of the first century. He wrote his gospel, his letters, Revelation, at the end of his life, in the 90s, let's say. What did he do with it? Did he give it to a publisher, a printer, maybe put it in the library, behind a glass, or buried in sand? Well, no, he gave it immediately to his disciples, and they started using it as authoritative apostolic scripture. And so that's the amazing thing. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was passed on right away, and we see that. We know about this process because we read from them uh, and how they did that. Um, and one example is um, the earliest manuscript we currently have from, from the New Testament is called P52. It's a, it's a part of John 18. It's a small part. Um, but still, it's evidence, um, and it dates to the beginning of the second century, maybe 125 or so AD. And that's just about 25, 30 years after it was actually written, because the Gospel of John was written after the end of the first century. So it's extremely early. Now, the astonishing thing is that this piece was found in uh, Egypt, in Alexandria. And therefore, that's far away from Asia Minor. We see that in a very short time span, the gospel was spread widely, geographically, even within just one generation. So uh, again, we see an amazing process of um, an early um, veneration and, and, and recognition of, of, um, yeah, of the authority, of divine authority of the apostles, and also that their writings were widely spread. Right, right, man. That's that's awesome because I think a lot of people think that uh, you know, especially with P fifty two. I mean, people think that you know the uh, the books were written like hundreds of years after you know the uh, 
um, you know, the apostles were long and dead. And, and uh, I want to hit on that question a little bit later. But but first, I do want to ask, so how long did it take to go from no New Testament books at all to a complete collection? Right, right. So the writing part of it took some time. The writing took maybe about 50 years to write all the New Testament books. And then there was a certain time that would be needed to share them. It took additional time to pass them around so that all churches had all the books. And then there would have been some time needed for discerning. Some churches were rightly careful about books they were unsure of. So it took time to determine whether they should be silver or gold. So that's, that's actually a good image that helps us to, um, to distinguish something here. Uh, throughout history, you had the gold and silver books. Gold were the inspired, inerrant, and canonical books. The second category, silver, were highly valued, helpful, good, but not inspired, not inerrant, and not canonical. So the, the second group was, was still read, and it was used, and sometimes it even functioned as a standard of belief and practice in certain communities. Um, but it, 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 it was clearly shown it was not part of the gold. Well, the first complete list of all our 27 books is the um, Easter letter by Athanasius in, AD, uh, in 367, where we have a full list of all and only the 27 books. But as I have uh, yeah, demonstrated already, uh, this has been going on much, much earlier than that. Um, so, uh, for example, by the end of the second century, we have the Canon Muratori and we have Irenaeus. And they had a list that is already very similar to the later list. Now, it's not exactly the same, but it's almost the same. And again, we have to remember there had to be a certain time that was needed for sharing all of these 27 books everywhere and for, for discerning them, all of them, that they were part of gold. And, um, and so that did take some time, but it did happen astonishingly quickly. Um, again, if we go back earlier um, to the beginning of the second century, we've already um, talked about some of the apostolic fathers there, and Polycarp being one of them, um, he, he was eager to collect a number of books. And if we think about his, his library, what he had, um, it seems... Um, he had a good part of the 27 books. He didn't have all of them, uh, but he came quite far. And um, yeah, and, and that shows us the high interest that the earliest uh, generation had in collecting these books and in, 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 in having and recognizing and reading them differently than any other book, reading them as gold with, with authority and divine authority. Right, right. So you've You've done an amazing job at answering the question of canonization. Now, another issue that you often hear when it comes to the New Testament or another um, accusation leveled at the New Testament uh, is that there it is riddled with contradictions. So I, I guess maybe the first way to, to tackle that particular question is, is what about like, you know, the Gospels? Doesn't it have like different uh verbiage or or different ways to say things that point to you know all these different kind of contradictions and stuff in there therefore we can't trust it uh, yeah that is an issue um there are differences in verbiage in the gospels it's just true and um, the production of the gospels is, is part of a, of a complex oral uh, to written tradition process so clearly the evangelists did not feel compelled to copy copy down the words of Jesus or his teaching verbatim. Um, if we'll take one example, in, um, 
in, in, in Matthew 9, in Mark 2, and in Luke 5, we find the story of the healing of a lame man. And they all report this healing of Jesus, of this lame man. But there are differences in wording. Like Jesus um, addresses the man as my son in Matthew and Mark. But in Luke, he simply addresses him as man. Or the phrase, I tell you, and then pick up your bed and go home. The part I tell you is missing only in Matthew. Uh, so Mark and Luke have it, but Matthew doesn't. But on the other hand, only Matthew tells us in the beginning of the story that Jesus tells him, have courage. So again, what am I saying? I'm saying that there are differences in the, um, in the, in the, in the very words. Um, and so how can we explain that? Isn't that a contradiction? Now, scholars have come up with, um, with two terms here that describe the differences and that help us maybe see the difference between our modern expectations and, and what's going on in the ancient world. And they use these two Latin phrases, ipsissima verba and ipsissima vox. Now, the first just means the very words, and that's what we consider a citation, a quotation. That's what our standard is today. But the second, ipsissima vox, means the very voice. And that is more what we find in the ancient world. Um, so it's giving a faithful um, speech and it's giving us the, what's going on, but it's not always giving us um, what was said verbatim. Maybe we can compare that with a news report today of a long speech. If we have a news report of a, of a long speech, we will get um, uh, different emphases, maybe in different reports. We see, we see it's not always said the same way, but it's still the same speech. Um, and, um, well, hopefully, if the journalist did his work well, it is still true to what was said in the speech. And this goes on with events. If we have uh, different um, journal reports um, on the Super Bowl and what happened, um, there will be differences in how, how it's being told. Uh, but it's still describing the same event. It's, it's making different uh, points here and there. But it's, it's focusing and giving us what was going on at this event. So sometimes we know that this is going on in the Gospels because we get differences in wording. And we have seen one example. Um, and and this, we have these differences. Mm, but again, this possibility of arrangement and even of compilation of teaching under themes um, is part of what the Gospel writers do. And it's part of their literary choices. And, and, um, and, and one other example for that is in Matthew, we have five speeches of Jesus. And this may have been an intentional choice to present Jesus as the new Moses, because Moses has the five books of Moses. And Jesus have, ha, uh, has five specific speeches and teach, where he teaches. And this is how Matthew presents it. Now, such literary moves do not compromise historicity. Uh, it was a goal to present and summarize Jesus' teaching. And that does not always give us the exact chronology. Maybe to, to finish this up, I'd like to, uh, to quote Leon Morris, a scholar on the Gospels, and he, he, he comes to this conclusion. Jesus was such a gigantic figure that we need all four portrays to discern him. So he's saying we actually need all the four Gospels um, because they all give us a different perspective and um, help us to see more who Jesus was and what he actually said. Right, right. So what about theological contradictions within the New Testament? 
Right. Yeah. And there are a number of those that we can bring up. Well, we'll, we'll um, maybe hit, hit just the main things. So, so one thing that's gotten very popular with scholars that are um, more critical of the uh, authenticity of certain books in the New Testament is to point at differences in theology within the New Testament. Um, for example, if you look at the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, then people argue um, that the church order that is described there, people call it ecclesiology, the teaching concerning the church, that that um, is late. And why would it be late? Well, because they say it's too high. It has too much structure. Um, there's ordination, there are offices, there's a list of widows and these kind of things. And therefore, it wouldn't fit the early time of the apostles. And therefore, even though the letter claims to be written by the Apostle Paul, many scholars today would reject that and would say it is fake. Somebody else wrote it later on in the name of Paul. Now, uh, and that's based on this theological contradiction. Now, it seems that this is, um, well, I would say it's, a, it's quite a bit biased because who says uh, the earliest church had no offices or church order? And in fact, we would point then to the um, letters that are accepted and where people say, well, this was Paul and Philippians is one of them today. And so uh, Philippians 1.1 opens with a reference to the episcopoi and diaconoi, so to the elders or bishops and the deacons in the church of Philippi. So there we see that offices and structure are not a late um, development, but they are there from early and apostolic times on. Um, or the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, they had, they had offices already, elders and deacons, and so it's no surprise that the early church would have had, would have naturally adopted such an order, and we can see that in Acts 6, for example. So therefore, yeah, I, I would say there are no um, theological contradictions in church order between supposedly later parts of the New Testament and earlier parts. Um, yeah, we could take about other examples like the end times, eschatology. Uh, some people also say there are um, contradictions within the New Testament as it comes to eschatology. And they say earlier books anticipate an immediate return of Christ anytime, any moment. And then later books would correct that and maybe suggest that Christ comes still later and there are certain things that need to happen. Um, or that would emphasize more that Christ is ruling now from heaven. Mm. Or that would emphasize that we have many of the end time blessings already here and now. Now to answer that objection, I would say that there is um, a mix of immediate return expectation at any time um, and the expectation of certain heightened tensions in the end times. And we find both sides, these, these heightened tensions, yeah, certain events that take place and the return of Christ. We find that in all kinds of books of the New Testament. So uh, both in those that are commonly accepted as early and apostolic, as well as those that are commonly assumed to be later and maybe not apostolic, but fake. Um, and, and this is actually not a surprise because we see the same going on in not Christian, but also Jewish apocalyptic. So end time stuff that Jews write. And it's no surprise or even a contradiction. Right, right. Well, another question that I have is, um, so there are so many translations of the Bible. And so what a lot of people wonder is, well, how can you really 
trust what the Bible actually says if there's so many different translations and and wasn't the Bible simply a uh, or the Bible that we have now simply a translation of a translation of a translation so I guess one uh, analogy that I've always heard was um, that the Bible is akin to the telephone game you know where you kind of whisper in somebody's ear and then they have to pass along your message and it goes around the group and by the time it gets back to you it's totally changed so that is that's often um, uh, an accusation leveled at the uh, at, at New Testament scripture. So how would you answer that particular argument? Well, first of all, we have to remember that our Bibles today that we hold in our hand they're translated from the Greek and Hebrew. So there, it's only one translation. It's translated once from the original Greek and the original uh, Hebrew. Um, now, with the passing on, you know, the telephone game. We should rem remember also that we live more in a written culture and uh, um, Jews in the first century particularly and even today are often more of an oral culture. Um, we see that in many cultures still today where memorization, for example, is something that is very much part of the culture, very common. Um, if you think about the Pharisees, I mean, there's a lot about the Pharisees in the Gospels. In order to even, um, yeah, enter um, the group, you had to memorize the five books of Moses. So it's, it's, it's impossible to imagine for us today as uh, people who just, you know, if we don't know, I mean, we only need to know where to find it. How, you know, we Google it or something, you know. Exactly. My brain would explode, literally explode if I had to memorize all of that. Right, right. But a lot of the church fathers, Ignatius and others, um, would have memorized all of the um, New Testament in Greek. And, and, and that was part of their culture because they were actually trained to do that. They were brought up that way, and it was uh, normal. So even if there was um, a, a period in the beginning um, where there was this oral tr transmission, this, this does not need to um, upset us or make us think that this was um, a huge source of corruption. Uh, no, it doesn't seem to be very likely if you consider the culture uh, where this was very common. And if you consider what we've talked about already, that this was pretty early on um, um, uh, yeah, written down and passed on. So, so maybe then the question becomes more a question of transmission. Is that right? Maybe is that something you want me to talk about a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So then the question becomes, how was this text transmitted to us, the original Greek and Hebrew text? So we have this text, but is it the text that, that was there originally? Um, so, first of all, we see, even in the, in the words of Luke, in the beginning of his gospel, that very early on there were these early written reports. So they were written down by hand on, on papyrus leaves, it's a plant. Um, and then later on, the scrolls that they were written on were replaced um, by codex. So that's sort of the forerunner of a book. And so Christians contributed actually some to this uh, development of this technique and advancing writing techniques, uh, including um, a, a, another script, the, um, the large letter script, mayuscules uh, were replaced by what's called minuscules, which means uh, small letters. And that made it possible to write faster and reproduce more, um, uh, yeah, more frequently than New Testament. And so let's compare this with other works in the ancient world for a moment. Uh, maybe people have heard this before, but this is really astonishing. And we, we, we cannot repeat this argument often enough. How does the New Testament measure up to other books of the ancient world? Uh, if we take, for example, Homer's Iliad, which is like the book of the ancient Greek world. Uh, I read it for the first time this winter and uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed it. Um, but it, it is so influential and it was... Um, 
it, we have about 640 manuscripts of this work. But we don't know how early they are. They are centuries after the original work, which was written in the 8th century BC. So the, the date of the earliest manuscript is unknown to us. Um, and that's the, uh, yeah, and there's still a high number of manuscripts we have. If we, if we use other works of the ancient world that were very influential and, and used widely, like the histories of Tacitus, um, which were written around 180, the first copy and earliest manuscript we have today is from 980, so that's 800 years later, and we have a total of 20 um, manuscripts. So how's that for the New Testament? Well, New Testament was written the first century, and the first piece and the first manuscript we have is from, we've talked about it, um, from the beginning of the second century, 125 AD, just about. And then we have plenty others from the second century and then third century. And so, so there's a very small gap. And we have a total of almost 6,000 manuscripts, Greek, Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. This is not even counting the quotations and the fathers and the, the fathers, the early church fathers, quote the New Testament so much that we can reproduce the whole uh, New Testament just from their quotations. Um, and so scholars have called this all that we have and an embarrassment of riches. We are really, I mean, we have an incredible number of, of sources and manuscripts that tell us about the New Testament. Um, and but what about the differences? So if you have the more manuscripts you have, well, it's logical, the more differences you have. So our problem is that we don't have less than 100%, but we have more than 100% of the New Testament. We have maybe, let's say, 110%. And how do we sift that out so that we get to what was original? Well, first of all, over 99% of the differences are insignificant. There's no important theological question that is affected by text criticism, which is what it's called, the transmission of the text. Maybe the most important question affected is in Matthew 17, 21, if you include fasting there. And that's then the question of fasting is necessary to cast out a demon. Um, and, and otherwise, we have no theological questions that are affected by, this, by the question of the transmission of the text. So we can see that this extreme skepticism of some people um, regarding the transmission of the New Testament is, is not based on reliable historical data. Uh, to the contrary, the unique transmission history of the biblical text may grant more and not less security because we have this embarrassment of riches. The text critics have really done a great job. Right. You know, but what what about um so there there's like extreme uh skepticism and things like that like i mean you have uh dan brown um and, and remind me is dan brown the one who wrote um oh shoot what's that book the da vinci code the da vinci code that's it i could only think of um the guy who plays the guy in the da vinci code and his bad haircut so i got thrown off but um but also islam as well so how would you answer that extreme skepticism yeah, and Bart Ehrman and others um, that add to that. So yeah, um, well, as I said before, we, we can, first of all, we can point to this, what has been called by scholars, embarrassment of riches, that we have so much material. So our problem is not that we don't have uh, parts of the New Testament, but we have a little bit more than was part of the original Testament. And then again, we, um, so that's a strength. It's not a weakness, first of all. Um, right. And then secondly, um, there has has been done a, a very good job in helping us understand how um, how some changes have come about. You know, some were obviously um, unintentional changes. Um, you know, somebody may uh, drop a line as they copy it. 
uh, or get tired or whatever. But there are some that have been intentional changes. Um, most famously, the Comma Ioanneum, which was um, inserted in the first printed Greek text from Erasmus, uh, and he was forced to um, insert it in the text. He didn't want to um, because he, he already felt that it was not part of the original text, but it, there's an affirmation of the Trinity there. Now, again, I don't think the Trinity depends on that. So it's not a theological um, doctrine that's a fact that we have plenty of other texts that point us uh, sufficiently to the concept of the Trinity, even though the word is not used in the New Testament. Uh, but this verse in 1 John would have helped us to um, make that more clear. And um, so he was pressured to include it by the Roman Catholic Church. And uh, he said, well, I only include it if you show me one manuscript that has it. Well, after some time, they showed him a manuscript that have it. And today, um, people have, um, well, d did some research on that. And it's uh, the, the manuscript was written in the 16th century. So they probably produced it just for that purpose for him. Um, anyhow, so that's an example of an intentional change that should not have been uh, part of the text and there may there there are others um, but again if we look if we, if we weigh the evidence and if we um, um, yeah if, if we look at the data there are many good criteria that has, have helped us to sift through that and to to come to um, a reliable New Testament Greek text from which we then translate our Bibles right right well the last question that I wanted to ask you uh, was Weren't the books of the New Testament written long after the apostles died? Like hundreds of years? That's a that's another accusation that's usually leveled at the New Testament. Or no, no, they were not. So, um, um, well, some people say the Gospels were written after 70 A.D. That's an important date in the first century because 70 A.D. is when the temple in Jerusalem got destroyed. So there was a Jewish revolt, revolt just before that against the Romans, and then. Um, the Romans crushed that and destroyed the temple. And so since the Gospels um, refer to the expected destruction of the temple, this would be a prophecy. Um, and, um, well, again, if you come from a worldview where you sort of deny the possibility of God uttering a prophecy and giving uh, such an event, then you have to come up with another explanation. And what is done is usually it's said that this is a prophecy after the event. So um, therefore, the Gospels would have to be written after 70, after the temple was destroyed because they prophesied. And since there can be no prophecy, would be after. So that, that would be a reason for many today to, um, to date the Gospels later. Um, um, and another reason would, well, or let me address this reason first. Well, obviously, if if we are, I, I would say, even if we are open-minded, we have to at least allow for the possibility that, that there is true prophecy. And Jesus obviously could prophesy the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And therefore, it's not necessary to date the Gospels even after the destruction of the temple. It could have been written before that. And that's what I think is very plausible and likely that they were written maybe in the 60s um, before the destruction. And therefore, they would be early. So, um, yeah, um, it was in the generation of the apostles. The apostles lived in the first century. Um, they started disappearing in the 60s with Peter and Paul. Um, likely uh, dying in Rome in the 60s, and the Apostle John living up to the end of the first century. And so in that time, all the books of the New Testaments were written. And I would add, even in this, this point of, of critics, even if, if we grant it to them and say, well, maybe then the Gospels were written after 70 AD, it doesn't change that much, because they all agree today 
that they were finished by 100. Now, 100 years, 150 years back, there was a liberal school in Germany that dated them late in the second century, so outside the apostolic period. But this is gone. Um, even, even within the liberal school, uh, people have seen that this uh, doesn't hold. And part of the reason are, by the way, the apostolic fathers that have been dated earlier and earlier and earlier. And they are quoting and using these scriptures, and therefore the New Testament scriptures have been dated earlier and earlier and earlier. And so everybody pretty much agrees nowadays that they were written in the first century. I would argue before the destruction of the temple, the Gospels, and particularly. Um, uh, but even if it was after that, um, it is within the generation of the apostles, and there are no long time periods and gaps uh, between the uh, written books of the New Testament and um, the death of the apostles. Right, right. Well, man, Tommy, thank you so much. Like, this is such a, I think it's such an important thing to to know and to understand, because I think, uh, I think Christians can often maybe lean too heavy into this, you know, this blind faith kind of mentality with some things. And when they are presented with these, with these accusations against the New Testament, it's easy to get their faith shaken because they, they, they don't, you know, they don't know these things. And so they kind of take these arguments at face value. But it's such a, it's such a comfort to know that, you know, God has given us, like you said, a, an embarrassment of riches uh, of reasons why we can we trust his word we can trust the new testament we can we can trust what it says and and base our faith in the word of god and know that it is true and that's man, for me in my own personal uh walk it has been such an important aspect of being able to know these things and and know that you know i'm just not blindly leaping into the darkness sometimes you're right on well thank you michael i think this is a very good ministry you're doing it and this is important for us to remember that even though critics sometimes present it in a way that seems like um, uh, like there's no way to get around it and we have to jump to their conclusions. When we look at the data and we look at the early church and what's actually happened there, we see that's not the case. Um, and we should recognize that there's also a lot more disagreement even among different critical scholars than is commonly presented. Um, so they, there are hardly two that agree on, on the same theory themselves uh, and the reasons for why they came up with it. And therefore, uh, we, should, we should really not think that these are, are um, yeah, reasons that are um, unrejectable and, and clear-cut and crystal clear. And um, yeah, that's just not the case. And we can see that the New Testament, again, their no, own words, the words... Oh, hey, are you are you still there? You cut out uh, a couple seconds ago around when you said New Testament. Uh, well, let me think. Well, again, there is um, like the second generation after the apostles already make a distinction between what the apostles and the New Testament is giving us and that that is God's word inspired and their own contributions, which were valued, but who were distinguished from from the New Testament um, scripture immediately. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking the time to to talk to me and, and to do this interview. I know that it's uh, it's going to help people listening to this podcast uh, just strengthen their faith. And so thank you for, for your ministry and, and just clearing up some of these different myths of the New Testament. Yeah, you're welcome, Michael. Mm -hmm. Thank you oh. for your time and ministry. Well, I hope to uh, talk to you again sometime soon. Say hi to Kayla and we'll, we'll, we'll talk to each other. Absolutely.
Thank you for listening to the Truth For Doubt discussion series. If you would like to know how you could support the Truth For Doubt ministry, please go to truthfordoubt.com give or visit our Patreon page at patreon.com t4d.